This is The Guardian. Before we start, if you haven't heard episode one, go back and take a listen. And a warning, this episode includes descriptions of animal cruelty. So I had my first call with Natural England six weeks ago and asked them if they could send over the camera footage of the chicks being stamped on and I haven't got it yet. We basically want them to show us the nest and tell us about the hen harrier conservation work that they're doing in that area. They're not getting back to my emails about arranging this trip. For weeks, I had been trying to arrange a meeting with Stephen Murphy from Natural England, the government body in charge of protecting its wildlife. Stephen was the lead staff member who'd been monitoring Susie. Susie was the hen harrier whose nest of chicks had been crushed, and this was the story I had been investigating. Natural England has to work closely with landowners because nests are often on private land and they need permission to access them. Okay, I'm going to call my contact for the fourth time. It turned out not to be as straightforward as I'd expected. Okay, I have a missed call from my contact in Natural England, so I'm going to give them a buzz back. As producer Madeline found out on my debrief calls, I was starting to get frustrated with what was going on behind the scenes. She said they're having difficulty with landowner permissions, and I said, like, have you asked the landowner permission? And she said no, and I said, so how do you know there's difficulty with landowner permissions? But yeah, I was kind of quite sharp on the phone. So I'm kind of, I am at the end of my tether a bit. Yeah. We weren't being told the name of the estate the crime happened on or even where the nest was located. The message seemed to be, leave this alone, which I wasn't going to do. So in the meantime, I was going to have to approach this from a different angle. If you stop someone in their track there and then and you get immediate police enforcement the following day, you can literally see the changes within the next season. A hen harrier might start sky dancing on the mall and, and it's literally like, you know, flicking a coin. You know, we're doing something straight away. From The Guardian, I'm biodiversity reporter Phoebe Weston and this is a special mini-series from The Age of Extinction. Killing the Sky Dancer, part two. The perfect crime. If, like me, you wanted to catch someone who committed a crime like this, how would you do it? The answer took me to the tiny Yorkshire train station of Dent, not far, we believed, from where Susie's chicks had been crushed, on a rainy, windy day. The train station is surrounded by a bleak and beautiful landscape that has been shaped by generations managed for grouse, sheep farming and forestry. And police say it's a hot spot for illegal killings. It's raining a lot and basically all I can see is clouds and rain, so I'm wearing my full waterproof gear. I am really excited to finally actually get out on the moors and see where this problem is actually unfolding. And also cool to see how these guys are trying to tackle it. Um, I'd asked Jack and Tom to meet me there. 
They work in the RSPB investigations team looking into wild bird crimes across the country. Their job is to try and collect evidence of people committing these kinds of crimes and then work with other organisations like Natural England and the police to take cases through the justice system. It means a lot of their work is in the field. Um, let's have a quick chat. Uh, do you want to park up and we'll sure. maybe jump in the yeah, yeah, right. Hi, <laughs> nice to meet I'm Phoebe. Jack, nice to meet you. They were exactly what I'd imagine two guys who spend their time climbing mountains to look like. And of course, that's the idea. Jack and Tom don't want anyone to know or remember who they are. They might have looked like unassuming hikers, but in their rucksacks with DNA testing kits, high-spec binoculars and cameras. I wasn't prepared for how clandestine our meeting would feel. Rearranged. Would you mind shutting the window? Yeah. Sorry. I know it's not. It's going to steam us up. Um, if My plan had we been like to take them to a spot near where Susie's nest had been okay. to see how they would, in theory, investigate a crime like this. Unfortunately, the weather meant we were unlikely to see anything at all. So instead, we drove over to take a walk around the area. That is one heck of a viaduct. Okay, lovely bit of Yorkshire for you. Yeah. Jack and Tom's work depends on them getting tip-offs about persecution hotspots and going out onto the moors and trying to see crimes or suspicious activity. It's basically a stakeout. Except instead of a car, you might be hiding below a huge rock or behind some heather. The challenging thing is, to keep yourself safe, you have to be as far away as possible, but not so far that you can't see anything. So you want somewhere with a big view? You want to be recording video evidence of a crime being committed, a bird of prey being shot, for example, somebody placing a poison bait. If somebody does shoot a bird of prey, then you want to find out what they're going to do with it. Are they going to dispose of it on the moor? And maybe you can go back with the police and try and recover it. Or are they going to take it with them? In which case that might give you forensic opportunities. The police could find blood or feathers in their vehicle, for example. And the clincher is the ID. Can you identify that suspect? Where do they go? Do they have a registration plate that you can read? Can you see their face? Knowing where to go, when, and then being able to see something, someone, identifiable, is almost impossible. And to add to that, all the person committing the offence needs to do is stick on a mask or a balaclava. Even in the extraordinarily rare cases they do see something, it's even rarer for it to result in a prosecution. As we walked, my mind went back to the chicks. I mean, the one we're mm. looking into, I was shocked by that this is a bird which had a freaking camera on it mm. and the mother's tagged and someone goes and crushes all of the chicks. Mm. That's pretty audacious. Like, yep. It's a big kind of middle finger to whoever's looking after that. Yeah, that's, yeah. And sometimes... That's quite an apt description. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that just shows... Not, not only do they not care for the legislation that's in place to protect these species they don't care for people or the conservation efforts put in place to protect the species. And I'm sure that there are estates and other gamekeepers that are absolutely livid when that happens. Yeah. Like, like the average person would be. But maybe even more so because 
each one of those is another black mark against shooting industry isn't it? but it's again i think it's interesting because it's like it seems stupid but also from what i've seen of this case you get away with it like these chicks were stamped on the police take six months to get an appeal out and we've heard nothing else about it so it's like if i can stamp on a bird of prey in the nest of a bird of prey that's got cameras on it I would feel invincible. Like, I can pretty much do anything. The issue is, is, and wildlife crime in general, is such a hard thing to police from, you know, an enforcement perspective because you need that evidential threshold. Mm. If you, get, if you don't, haven't got that, you've got no case to go on. We would have needed one of you guys to have seen someone crushing these chicks. Potentially, or there uh, would have been very good forensic evidence. Certainly... You know, forensics is, is quite a broad scope and it would cover everything from, you know, post-mortems to poison testing, fingerprinting DNA, and that's wildlife yeah. and human DNA. You know, for example, if you were to have a suspect in that nest stamping and you were to seize their footwear, would yeah. you find traces of hen harrier DNA on their boots? That would be a potential forensic avenue. It dawned on me that I had nothing to go on in the case of Susie and her chicks. Natural England wouldn't hand over the video footage or let me speak to the person who was monitoring the nest. And the police's evidence amounted to knowing that a crime had taken place, but that was it. You obviously spend day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, out on the moors looking for these crimes. The evidence suggests that they're very widespread but yet we're kind of getting at the very, very, very tip of the iceberg of people who are actually facing any kind of penalties for doing this. How does that make you feel? Yeah, it's soul-destroying at times, it can be, but at the end of the day, you keep going. You know, it's like the only way to, to win, essentially, and stop this and put it in its place is to carry on, because they'd love us just to stop, and then they could just carry on. But we're not going anywhere. Let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Jack and Tom, in their own way, are deterrents. The chance that someone could be on the side of a hill, watching and collecting evidence to be used in court, will hopefully be putting some people off. And we're going to return to the consequences of this crime and who bears them in our last episode. But when I got back into town, an email popped up from Natural England. Just got back into my hotel room and have been out with RSPB most of the day with no phone signal. Come back and need to check my emails. Okay. Hi, Phoebe. I've tried to call you a few times this afternoon. Stephen is set for an in-person interview tomorrow morning. He's available from 9.30am and the meeting point would be Ribblehead. Fantastic. That's so good. They'd finally decided that I could speak to Stephen Murphy. There were a few caveats. The landowner had said Natural England was not allowed to take us onto the estate and so we had to stay about a kilometre away and someone from the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, who fund Natural England and manage their press, was also coming to listen in to the meeting. I'm just on my way to meet Stephen and actually really looking forward to it because it has been so difficult to arrange this and yeah go for a nice little wander with him hello oh, yeah. how are you i'm super duper good how are good. you really good how 
Stephen was immediately warm and open and totally disarming. He was also quite confused about why it had been so difficult to speak with him in person, not least because he had been monitoring Susie and her nest from the beginning. Basically, we knew her since she was an egg. I fitted the tag when she was 30 days old. So we go back quite a long way, yeah. And so last year, tell us what happened to Susie. She set up nests on Wernside. Yeah, she got here quite early, actually. There were a number of males about, and one of them managed to woo Susie. Everything was looking good. She had four young in the nest. So then what we'll do then is safely monitor that from distance. And then what were the first signs that she wasn't OK? The really, really good parents, hen harriers, especially the females. Once they've got eggs in the nest, they'll very rarely move more than a kilometre away from it. And on this particular evening, we can just log on the laptop and look where all the birds are. And as I look down, Susie, instead of being on or around the nest, was 30 kilometres away up in the north. So instantly my heart sank, and then we found that the chicks were dead. At the time, we didn't know why they died. They were just dead chicks in and around the nest. But the sad thing is, when we look back at the footage the next morning, which was really heart-wrenching, was she was back trying to feed the dead chicks, which was, you know, as I say, it was pretty bad. And when you see the whiteout on the camera, did you not think, this is a human that's done this, it's not natural? Yeah, instantly, because we've got thousands of hours of footage never never in any of the other thousands of hours have we got a whiteout in this you know it just doesn't happen and how do you get the whiteout in the camera i don't know once we'd realized there was something wrong then it was over to the yorkshire wildlife crime yeah. officers to look into that do you think that they'll solve it it's difficult to say isn't it i don't know where they're up to to be fair we've done everything we can the camera that was up there it was for one of a better term it was probably a good term it was hoodwinked and we put that camera in in the knowledge of the landowner the landowner wanted the camera in this nest as a lot of these people do because they want to show if it does fail they would like to see why it failed so you don't think the landowner or the gamekeepers from that estate were involved we just don't know okay we haven't got a clue to be fair yeah who do you think did it i've not got a clue Because, I mean, you know, we could call it an isolated incident. If we look at, in the bigger picture, there's 31 young fledged from this same estate since 2018. Mm. So that seems to me that there's um, something going right for the birds over here, and hopefully that was an isolated incident. So we know it's difficult to actually do anything about these isolated incidents, but we also know it's generally going the right way. We are now seeing that maybe there's been a reduction in the intensity of the persecution and the hen areas are prospering from that or they're certainly going the right way. I contacted Natural England about this later. Between 2018 and 2022, seven hen harriers were tagged. None of these tags are currently transmitting data. When a tag stops transmitting data, it means the tag is broken or the bird is dead. What do you think about the RSPB report from lockdown which showed that persecution in England had been at its highest for years? I suppose persecution is it's certainly still out there. We're not saying that it's in any way gone away and we've still got a long road ahead. These birds are far from safe, yeah. And you, as you work for Natural England, are obviously in a difficult position because you need to work closely with landowners to look after chicks on grouse moors. Yeah. But you're equally under pressure from conservationists like RSPB who feel really frustrated that not more is being done 
about raptor persecution? Like, you've obviously got a role where you have to be quite diplomatic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the middle ground is a lonely place, is, is, a, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, the analogy I use, it's like a, a dry stone wall that's in need of a repair. So as you're balancing along it, if you stumble one way, then you'll get the tridents and the spikes pointing at you from the conservation groups. And if you fall the other way, then the shooting groups and that type of um, industry will give you some stick. But, you know, it is that's what it is about. It is about finding that middle ground, isn't it, really? Yeah. No matter how difficult it is. So, Stephen, when something like this happens, mm-hmm. how does it impact those very delicate relationships? Yeah, it's a really good question. And that's the, just part of the fine line that we tread, really. That's probably the hardest aspect of the job. We're the people that have to go back to those places afterwards and work on the ground when a bird does go down and then we get or we get something like we did with Susie. Then obviously there is this um, difficulty in going and explaining that to the people that have been good to let us on the ground and host these birds for years. That is a difficulty. Just to pause here, when I listen back to this interview, I wish I'd pulled Stephen up here. Of the 190 individuals convicted of bird of prey persecution-related offences between 1990 to 2021, almost three quarters had connection to the game shooting industry and 67% of them were gamekeepers. So gamekeepers employed by landowners are often the prime suspect when a bird of prey has been targeted on a grouse moor. So, in retrospect, I was surprised that what Stephen was concerned about was breaking the bad news. Tell us about Susie now. Susie is about four kilometres from us now. I went out to look forward this morning, but, you know, if these were that easy to see, they wouldn't be as exciting as they are to track and everything. We wouldn't need trackers. So I didn't see her, but I did see her mate. What Susie will be doing now, she'll be measuring him. How good is he? Can he help me bring these chicks up? And so she could be laying eggs yeah, now? Yeah, probably today, actually. This is roughly a good day for her to start today. Are you going to get a camera on her again this year? Well, it's all down to the landowner. If the landowner wants that, we will, but we'll certainly push for that. After meeting Stephen, I also spoke to John Holmes, Chief of Strategy at Natural England. He emphasised that Natural England recognises raptor persecution has been the main factor driving their decline over the past few decades, especially where they are perceived to come into conflict with driven grouse moor management. During my investigation through a Freedom of Information request, I had found that the British Association for Shooting and Conservation or BASC, one of the main grouse shooting organisations in the UK, has given Natural England £46,000 since 2016. John told me that he did not see this as a conflict of interest and that BASC has made the contribution because it has stated a commitment to helping improve the prospects of raptors and hen harriers. When I asked Natural England about why they hadn't wanted to speak to us about Susie's case. They said, Natural England has a duty of care to not prejudice any potential investigation and has been careful not to release information that may put birds at risk of persecution, including detailed location and operational information. In arranging interviews with members of staff, we seek to be accountable while ensuring our operational staff can carry out their duties. 
I could understand why Stephen and Natural England spoke positively about how hen harriers are doing and the role of grouse moor landowners in facilitating that, because they have important partnerships to maintain. Without the ongoing cooperation of shooting organisations, landowners and gamekeepers, they can't do their job. But at the same time, a lot of their work tagging and monitoring hen harriers exists because raptor persecution continues. Using a few details people had given me over the course of the investigation so far and studying the map of the local area, I'd managed to piece together a rough location of where Susie's nest was likely to have been. So I went out to see if I could get closer to it. Right, I've worked out really loosely where this nest is. I also know that hen harriers nest at around 400-ish metres. So I've followed the coordinates of the land, looked at the railway line and come up with a spot where I think the nest could be about. This is really rough, but I just want to go and have a look at it to see what this land looks like. Let's get wet. I began to walk up a hill, trying to work out exactly where I was on the map. Maybe I can go through that gate. There's an odd abandoned house around here. Sheep, you can always see sheep. And this, right, this is the tunnel. Eventually, I was stood in a boggy patch of moorland, unable to go much further. So I've got off the road nearest to where I think the nest is and it's still two kilometres away into the hills. Looking at what I can see now illustrates why this is the perfect crime because I've got a pretty good view. I cannot see a single person. It is really, really remote and if you're trying to get there from a road, you're going to have to do a lot of walking. It made me wonder... Who would know the nest was there in the first place? Feeling defeated, I made my way back to a nearby town and stopped at a local cafe where I got chatting to the owner, Alan, a friendly older man who was very keen to talk. How did you get into grouse shooting? Oh, a lot of years ago, I used to go breeding. Yeah. There's no grouse much up here, and my father used to a bit of a to get people out and, and that, and he got it going. Are they driven grouse moors or just, like, casual...? Oh, no, they're driven. Driven, yeah. They're driven, yeah. Right. So you've Breakers. been doing it since you were a boy? Yeah. And your, fa- your father did it, your father's father did it? Yeah, it's just passed down, isn't it? It's just a generation thing, isn't it? But so you're very pro-grouse moors. Can you just explain why you're pro them? They bring a lot of revenue into Dales. All shooting brings a lot of revenue into Dales. Yeah. The hotels and everything gain. Like, you know, everybody gains by shooting throughout the year. So, but so we get shooters in here every week. You own this cafe and it's good yeah. for your business. You say you think there's more wildlife yeah. on grass than... Where Packham and his happy men have stopped it all, in Wales and that, there's no vermin, there's nothing anymore. It's just barren, dead waste grass. Everything's gone. The shooting fertility is not here to kill everything. These, some of these do-gooders want to come and actually just stand and keep their bloody mouth shut and watch what a shoot does through the day. Yeah. But do you accept that some grouse moor keepers do kill birds of prey? 
I don't recollect any round here, but I can remember them doing so years ago. Yeah. Because then, you know, that was the job to get, you know, when they could, but then it's just, you know, it's totally different now to what it used to be. Mm. The folks want to get that into their heads. 99% of the keepers now, they're looking after their livelihoods. They could decide, they're like a gardener, aren't they? But they're gardening wildlife. We aren't there to kill everything that really moves, like Packham and them thinks they are. They, you know, they, they don't understand it. I'm getting riled now, so you better switch that okay. thing off before and I start. No, don't. She's just getting going, look. She's got an audience now. She's just getting going. That woman you just heard was Alan's okay. sister. His mum happened um, to be in the cafe too. As soon as I went in, it was clear everyone there knew and loved Alan. In communities that benefit from grouse moors, where shooting has been passed down through generations, you can understand why people get rubbed up the wrong way, actually infuriated, with outsiders coming in, or more likely up, and telling them what to do. But the money it generates also means that some people might be willing to overlook these kinds of crimes. And if you're the one whose job it is to run a successful grouse moor, killing birds of prey might seem like the only option. The people that are doing it are almost certainly looking at their own income and then the income around the community, and they believe that that is necessary. Some commentators reported that recreational shooting has transitioned from a quaint country sport into a multi-million pound industry. I'm a bloke with a wife and three kids whose skill set is essentially around countryside management and being quite good at shooting things. I can't just go and get another job. That's next time. This episode was reported and produced by me, Phoebe Weston, and Madeline Finley. It was sound designed by Joel Cox, and the executive producer was Ellie Bury. I'll be back tomorrow for the final instalment of the Age of Extinction miniseries for Science Weekly, Killing the Sky Dancer. Part 3, An Open Secret. See you then. This is The Guardian.